From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The month of May provides numerous opportunities to win championships, and the Gators are taking advantage of that across the board. This past week saw softball and lacrosse both add to their considerable hauls by collecting conference trophies, and baseball is in position to join them shortly. On today's show, we'll cover a wide range of news on the orange and blue with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, including Dan Mullen's speaking tour, softball's record SEC title run, Brady Singer's dominance, basketball's surprising coaching development, the start of NCAA action for lacrosse, and women's tennis officially beginning their improbable national title defense. Also, we'll chat with lacrosse senior Shayna Pereka about her storied career and the sibling rivalry that helped define it. But first, football never strays too far from the headlines, and Dan Mullen hopes to keep it that way as he continues riling up the fan base at Gator Clubs across Florida. To open this week's roundtable, we asked Scott to fill us in on the latest tidbits from Coach Mullen's statewide trek. Well, Adam, it's uh, it's what the head ball coach likes to refer to talking season. Uh, you know what that means. That means uh, college football coaches are, are making the rounds, meeting with boosters, meeting with the alumni groups. And uh, Dan Mullen did some of that before the spring game, which was kind of a departure from uh, what coaches have done in the past. He, he went around the state and uh, spoke to some of these groups and, uh, you know, got people fired up for the spring game and uh, it worked out. But now he's he's got a few more. He started off in Lakeland this week and now in Fort Lauderdale, Miami. And, uh, you know, I think you're hearing a lot of the, the same messaging from him about the team. There's still a lot of unknowns about, you know, quarterbacks and not really any major news right now. Uh, the one thing that did catch my attention from his first stop in Lakeland was, you know, we all know recruiting, what that means to the, to any program. But, you know, he's got 10 assistant coaches right now out on the road recruiting. And he said he's he's hoping that they can get to every high school in the state. I don't know. He didn't really give a time frame on that. I don't know if that's going to happen this uh, spring. That's a lot of high schools. He's obviously trying to recruit the state heavy. And that's, you know, if you can recruit Florida well, you can win big usually. And uh, recruiting, he had a little taste of it when he first got here because they had the early signing period and then finished the class off in February. But his first full class, that's what they're working right now to build uh, that class that will start to form again, obviously, this coming December when the early signing period. So there's a lot of work out there. And right now, I think he's just, uh, again, he's uh, going out and meeting the constituents. Moving into some sports that are still in season, uh, Gator softball accomplished some history last week, and we discussed it a week ago, uh, the opportunity to win four straight SEC championships. Only one other program had ever done that in the history of SEC softball. Now Florida joins that club. And Chris, they're now up in Missouri where they were when they won the SEC championship. They've extended their stay for the tournament. And, you know, an opportunity to just finely tune things a little more before they go into the NCAA tournament where obviously most of their attention is going to be focused. You're right, Adam. All the focus is going to be obviously on the uh, on the NCAA tournament. That's where uh, Florida and 
Coach Tim Walton has certainly made their made their reputation. College World Series all but one year since the 2013 season. Uh, that's that's where Tim Walton puts all his focus as he heads into the postseason. Now, obviously, the South, it's nice to win a Southeastern Conference tournament, but candidly, I don't know how much emphasis um, Coach Walton will will put on that. He's won the thing three times since he's been here. He won in 08, won it in 09, and won it in 2013. Now compare that to uh, the eight SEC regular season titles, including the fourth in a row, which they won over the weekend. So um, he'll use to maybe play some more people, I think. But um, all his focus is, is being at home for that first round of that NSA tournament and the regional, and then obviously going for that uh, super regional. I, I actually think, I mean, the fact that Florida won the SEC tournament, or excuse me, SEC championship this year, Obviously, big news, and obviously the SEC tournament, a marquee event, certainly up there for the first time in Missouri. I think the bigger news, uh, Amanda Lorenz won SEC Player of the Year, and Kelly Barnhill won SEC Pitcher of the Year. Um, I don't know who else you, you would have given it to, but, I mean, that's a lot of hardware for this softball team. It's a lot of momentum for this softball team, and certainly both those uh, rewards are well-deserved. You're talking about Amanda Lorenz hitting over 400, well over 400. Kelly Barnhill, all she does is just strike out people and win. She's she's 25 and 1, Adam. That's that's not bad. Now, uh, I actually read an interesting item um, courtesy of Pat Dooley that gains the Sun. Kelly Barnhill has given up more home runs this year than the Florida pitching staff gave up all last season combined. Hmm. Yet she's 25 and 1 and arguably the most feared pitcher in the NSA. Uh, virtually every one of those home runs she's given up uh, were solo home runs, and uh, she gave up three back to back to back in the one loss she has this year to Georgia. So that's something that they talk about. With Tim Walton has said has frustrated her in the past, but she's gotten that under control, and certainly she'll she'll have that under control heading into the postseason. She's on quite a run. This is a crazy stat that matches up with what you just said. Kelly Barnhill has given up 59 hits this season, and 16 of them are home runs. So almost 25% of the hits she's allowed have been home runs. And, and Tim Walton has said, you know, to some degree, that sounds like a, a crazy number, but when you're a rise ball pitcher and you throw the ball the way that she does, in a lot of cases, if someone even makes contact, it's going to be a home run. It, it sort of comes with the territory as she's evolved as a pitcher. Yeah. And it's a great point you make about that. And another one that he makes well over half of those home runs, I'm thinking, and I and I forget what the percentage was. I think it may have been even been close to three quarters, have all been later innings. So when when players are seeing her maybe for the third time, and maybe have a little bit more sense of of, of timing, and contact on the rise ball. But again, I, I can't emphasize enough. Uh, when these things happen, there's no one on base. Mm-hmm. That, that's obviously a testament to her. It's, it is a weird kind of an anomaly, but uh, I think Tim Walton will take the trade off. I repeat those numbers again, 25 and 1. Pretty impressive. Yeah, and one final note on uh, the SEC softball tournament, which is it's an interesting note. I don't know that it would be that fascinating to people up in Missouri, but there's 13 teams that compete in softball in the SEC. 12 of them make the SEC tournament. The one that missed it this year is Missouri, and the reason they did is because they got swept by Florida this past weekend at home. Had they been able to win one of those games, they would have been the last team in the field. But Kaylee Cavista had pretty much quashed their hopes with a three-run homer in the seventh inning on Sunday that uh, ended that. And this is the beauty of it. This is the SEC in a nutshell. Missouri misses the SEC tournament. There'll be a pretty high seed in the NCAA tournament, despite not even making their conference field. That is 
the state of softball right now in the SEC is incredibly strong, and that's a real testament to it. Plenty of good seats available for yeah. uh, the SEC tournament. <laughs> it will be a mausoleum there, but that's that's kind of weird. And you think about it, St. Louis has hosted this year the SEC tournament, the SEC gymnastics and NCAA gymnastics, now the SEC uh, softball tournament. So it's been a busy time up there in the, in the Gateway City. Meet me in St. Louis, indeed. indeed. Moving on to baseball, and speaking of dominant pitchers, Scott, it, it's really been the key to baseball's success last few years is having that frontline dominant starter. And we've seen Brady Singer really evolve into that role and continues to dominate here down the stretch. Yeah, he's uh, he's made the loss of Alex Fado from last year's team seem like not a big deal. Of course, Alex Fado goes down as one of the best pitchers in school history, and yet the Gators haven't missed the beat because of Brady Singer on Friday nights and had his best outing of his college career, a complete game shutout win at Texas A&M on Friday. Got the series started uh, on a good note out there. Jackson Kowar followed him up with a nice performance Saturday and the Gators, you know, win their 18th consecutive series Mm. going back to last season, which is still pretty hard to comprehend. That's hard to do in baseball. And that just shows you how well they're playing how well they're pitching and and whatever this team does Adam down the stretch into the postseason Brady Singer is going to be the tone setter as that Friday night guy as that game one starter and he's an emotional guy we saw it last year in the postseason especially in the the regional uh you know that famous clip of him uh, getting a little upset when they they stopped that game when he was on the mound and uh, that went viral uh, but that's him I mean that's that's what makes him a uh, projected high first round pick, uh, that and that, you know, 96 mile power fastball, that nasty slider, and just a really, uh, I, I think, a, a know how on the mound, a veteran approach. He, he knows how to get hitters out. Uh, when he doesn't have his best stuff, he can still find ways to uh, retire batters because his stuff is so good and he's and he's an intelligent pitcher. And uh, there's a reason why there, he's got a chance to be that top pick in the draft. And now the final home series uh, before the NCAA tournament, which again, they'll be back at home for that. We're very confident in telling you that, but uh, tell us what the SEC race looks like here as they try and join that club of Gator teams winning SEC titles here. Well, the Gators control their own destiny. 18 and six magic numbers four. you got Georgia coming to town this weekend. Uh, you know, they would love to uh, clinch this thing as fast as they can and close out the regular season. They'll be out in Mississippi State and they'll go straight from Starkville up to Hoover for the SEC tournament. But get Florida's in excellent shape to, you know, clinch the SEC regular season title, uh, go into uh, the tournament as a top seed. And more than anything, you know, we talked a little bit last week about what O'Sullivan, Kevin O'Sullivan, uh, is going to see from his team is really just get this pitcher's dog go six innings or more. Of course, Singer and Coart did that. Uh, left Jack Leftwich uh, on Sunday, the Gators lost. Uh, he didn't quite have the outing he had the previous Sunday against Auburn at home. Uh, so I'm sure those he'll be looking to do that again on, on this weekend against Georgia. Should be a, a pretty good crowd, you know, with the final regular season series. I think people are starting to kind of get wind that the postseason's almost here. And, and the Gators have been ranked number one all season. So they've lived up to uh, the billing. And, uh, you know, there's no reason to think that this Florida team, if it's healthy, 
uh, can't go right back to Omaha and, uh, you know, have a chance to win it again. We weren't expecting to talk much Gator basketball this week, but uh, some news came out a few days ago about Florida's assistant coach, Armand Gates, who had come in to Mike White's staff just a little under a month ago, leaving to take an assistant coach job at Nebraska. Now, there aren't a lot of details out there about this story, but Chris, I'm curious what you can tell us from what you know uh, about this unexpected turn of events. Well, I guess a couple days into the uh, his, his time as a Florida assistant coach, I believe he was hired right around April the 8th, I believe is the date, opening up in Nebraska that uh, Coach Gates wanted to explore, and he encouraged uh, Coach Miles at Nebraska, Tim Miles, to uh, talk to Coach White, and uh, that conversation took place, and next thing you know, Armand Gates is telling that story in a news conference as a new assistant coach at uh, the University of Nebraska. That leaves an opening, obviously, that uh, that was made vacant by Dusty May getting the head coaching job at Florida Atlantic. So uh, uh, Jordan Mitzi, Darius Nichols remain on staff. Mike White now back in the process of uh, looking for a new assistant coach. I imagine uh, uh, that probably won't take very long. You want to get that filled so you can, uh, you know, be at full capacity when it comes time to start uh, start getting out on the road and watching some guys play. But um, like Mike White said, when uh, when Coach May went to Florida Atlantic, you know, he's going to try to get the best absolute guy for the job. He'll lock in on that. And his remarks with uh, regarding Armand Gates were pretty simple. You know, he was happy for him. He wished him the best. Uh, didn't seem like there were any hard feelings on that front. So they'll uh, they'll move on. And maybe the next time we have this podcast uh, next week, uh, we can talk about uh, Florida's uh, new assistant basketball coach. So Armand Gates is now a former Gator. Speaking of former Gators on the basketball front, uh, Al Horford is having himself a postseason. And Chris, he's been in the league a long time now. I know that because he was in school when I was. Uh, but having said that, a lot of people thought that maybe his best days were behind him and he may have been a drain on the Celtics with that contract and you know the, the stage of his career he's at. And he's answered some of those critics with a really, really impressive performance, especially in this series against Philadelphia. Well, you mentioned the, being the drain on the Celtics. He he signed a contract that I believe it was right around $125 million. He turned down, I think Washington was in the running, and certainly uh, Oklahoma City was in the running after losing Kevin Durant. Uh, Billy Donovan wanted him badly there. It didn't happen. He went to the Celtics. They, uh, they went to the conference final last year. And I tell you what, you know, this is his 11th season. <laughs> He's having his greatest postseason as an NBA player. I mean, you you said he, he was in school when uh, when or excuse me you were in school when he was a player here. You were in Atlanta obviously when he was pretty good for the Hawks. Look at his numbers right now. I'm talking 17.2 points a game. That's the most he's ever scored. 59.7 percent, so almost 60 percent from the floor. Those are career highs. He's at he's at almost 38 percent from the three point line. He's at 81 percent from the free throw line. He's grabbing almost nine rebounds a game and he's at three and a half assists per game. Just a phenomenal postseason at least by a guy who. Uh, you know, finally went over the 10,000 point uh, threshold this season for his career. But if you watch, you watch Al Horford, you see the young guys are really looking up to him and he's made some big shots. He's got the ball in his hands late in the game. And even the commentators are saying, oh, you give it to your veteran. Like all of a sudden, like, like Al Horford's LeBron James or something, but give the guy credit 31 years old. uh, Like I said, 11th season, putting together some Phenomenal numbers, and the Celtics, you know, they don't have Kyrie Irving. They lost Gordon Hayward basically before the season even started, and they're in the Eastern Conference Finals playing LeBron James. Uh, so good for Al Horford, and uh, so we, we saw Corey Brewer kind of jumpstart his uh, 
his career toward late, you know, playing pretty well for Billy D. So those guys are still around kicking and anyone who's on Instagram knows uh, what Joe Kim Noah is doing. He's, that's, <laughs> he certainly looks like he's having a good time himself. When is Joe Kim Noah not having a good time for <laughs> what it's worth? Uh, except for, I guess, being with the New York Knicks active roster, he's not having a good time. But everything else, he's really enjoying himself. Those are three guys that you just mentioned who all won multiple NCAA tournaments in their time at Florida. And now I want to talk about a couple of Gator teams that are trying to win NCAA tournaments of their own. And let's start with lacrosse. Uh, they're coming off of another Big East title. They're fourth in a row. They won the tournament in Gainesville. And now they're going to stay at home. And the NCAA tournament comes to them this weekend. And Scott, this is pretty big for this program. This has been the one thing over the course of this young program's lifespan that they haven't really achieved at the level they want to, which is NCAA tournament success. And now here's another chance for a, a really impressive senior class to leave their mark by maybe getting a bit further than some of their predecessors. Hey, you look back at the history of the program, I mean, this is only what, their ninth season of play. But back in the third season in 2012, they advanced all the way to the Final Four up at Stony Brook and the had Syracuse on the ropes and uh you know there was a call that went against them late and it went to overtime and it, it didn't work out for them and they've been fighting to get back there ever since but uh, I know Mandy O'Leary likes this team a lot uh it's a team that has a good mix of veterans and newcomers a lot of freshmen have played significant time this year I mean they really uh you know cruised to the Big East title uh last weekend uh beating Denver 18 to 6 and I mean, to put that in perspective, they were only in the Big East four years, Adam, but they won the last 33 matches. That's regular season and postseason. Uh, they were 39-1 and during their four-year, 40 matches in the Big East. I mean, they dominated the conference. That includes Georgetown and Villanova. And this year, you know, Denver, Butler. Some schools that have been around a lot longer than Florida playing lacrosse, but the Gators... Uh, They'll enter the NCAA tournament, the number six overall seed. They've been tested this year. You know, they, they faced number one Maryland in a match earlier this season and lost by two. They beat North Carolina, a perennial national title contender earlier this season. They had a little bit of a slump uh, midseason when they had some injuries, but they won, I think, 10 in a row now overall going into the tournament. So they're really playing well. And uh, Lindsey Rombeck, the most outstanding player of the Big East tournament, 15 goals in two games. Uh, the Gators go as she goes a lot of time, and boy, she's been going really well lately. So uh, I know O'Leary likes the way they're playing right now. Is, is you know, is hopeful this is the year that they do get back. And the way the NCAA tournament is set up, they will have a first round bye, and they will play the winner of Colorado and Jacksonville. They will play in Gainesville, and then Florida will play the winner to try and advance in that tournament. Uh, another NCAA tournament that's taking place in Gainesville this weekend is on the tennis side. And there's been a lot of success, certainly on the women's front in that department, Chris, and the men will try and get in on some of that success as well. Yeah. And both of those uh, teams will be home this week for the first round of the NCAA tournament. The women are obviously have the spotlight. They are the reigning national champions. Uh, and yet this Florida team goes into things a little differently than a year ago. They were number two in the country, I believe last year. When they started that uh, that run in postseason play that ended up in Athens, Georgia, uh, when Ingrid Neal won the decisive point for the, I believe, the seventh team title in, in Florida history and the fourth under uh, Roland Thornquist, uh, Ingrid Neal turned pro. Melinda Wolcock was the Honda Award winner in uh, in tennis last year. Both of them are gone. 
Uh, Brooke Austin, who played number five last year, they lost her to an injury uh, during the season this year. It was only because Florida was able to sign up incoming freshman in January by the name of McCartney Kessler that Florida has six players on its tennis on its women's tennis team this year. And uh, that's how many you need. But usually you have like eight and usually you uh, you're able to work yourself through uh, injuries and and slumps and what have you. And Florida started the season kind of slow. At one time they were three and four and fell all the way to 49th in the country. And ironically, that's when uh, Roland Thornquist said they started playing their best tennis. They went out to Stanford and beat uh, the Cardinal, which is obviously a, a, a phenomenal achievement for a team that wasn't playing particularly well. They had some big wins over South Carolina. They took Vanderbilt, which ended up winning the uh, SEC regular season title. They had, I believe, a 3-1 lead in that and actually uh, ended up losing that losing that match 4-3. to But Florida ended up finishing second in the SEC. Uh, they'll go into the NCAA tournament as, I believe, the number nine seed home court. They will have FSU, assuming they win their uh, opening round match against Youngstown State. They'll play FSU, and FSU is a team that beat Florida earlier in the season. So there will be some, obviously, some home match intrigue there. Uh, how much farther after that Florida can go with a team of three freshmen and three seniors, and again, just six players. Usually you have an extra to play doubles with or what have you. So uh, Roland Thornquist, though, he's not, he's obviously not throwing in the towel on anything. He's a competitive guy, and these are competitive young ladies, and, uh, They'll do whatever they can to uh, see how far and see how much longer they can hold on to the hardware that they won a year ago. Moving on to our PAT this week, uh, earlier this week, we saw Albert Pujols join the illustrious 3000 Hit Club, one of the more notable statistical clubs in sports, a benchmark that everyone looks to and says, okay, that's a sign of greatness right there. What I want to know from you guys is, what statistical achievement do you still marvel at? What number can someone get to in, in any sport that you say, okay, that is a sign of greatness because they achieved that milestone? I mean, I'm a baseball guy, as you guys know, and the one that always has stuck to me is Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. I mean, it, it was amazing then. In 1941, and what are we, uh, 77 years later? Is that right, Matt? It's still amazing to me now uh, that you can do that against major league pitching. And I just don't think that's ever going to be touched because with the game the way it is now, a lot of fresh arms every few innings, everybody's throwing 97, 98 miles per hour in the major leagues. Uh, to go up the bat, you know, three or four times and to come away with at least one hit in 56 consecutive games, which is what more than a third of the season. That that's a tremendous accomplishment, and that's why uh, there's been books written about it. That's why Joe DiMaggio is part of his legacy. A great player, won a lot of World Championships playing center field with the New York Yankees. Uh, was married to Marilyn Monroe, uh, but a lot of people, you know. If you think of Joe DiMaggio, the first thing you think of is that 56-game hitting streak, and I just I, I just consider that a uh, one of those sports marks that uh, stands alone. Do you remember Scott and when Pete Rose took it to 44 games? I believe it was in 1979, 78, 1978. I remember being a lifeguard in Arlington, Virginia, and listening to baseball games on the radio there or watching on TV as Pete Rose took that thing as uh, as far as he could take it. Um, I don't think that's that streak will ever be broken. And uh, the one that jumps out at me, Adam, what year was that? 3,000 or assuming that 56 game hitting streak, Scott? 
1941. Yeah, and I believe that was the second greatest achievement of that year. <laughs> Behind Ted Williams hitting 406. Oh, well, that's hmm. another one. Uh, one I of the grants is another reason why there's been books written about that season. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And and growing up, I, Ted Williams was the manager of the Washington Senators, a team I went to see with my dad play quite a bit. And I got his book when I was very young, My Turn at Bad, and read it. It was autographed by him and what have you. And just the notion that Ted Williams was hitting, I believe, uh, 401 um, the day, the last day of the season, and they had a doubleheader. I forget who it was against. And the manager told him, just sit it out. You know, you go down in history, and he refused to do it. I believe he ends up going four for seven in the doubleheader and ups the average to 406. And I remember when Rod Carew chased um, chased 400. 1977, maybe? I think he was 77. With the, with, with the twins. twins before he went to the Angels, yeah. And on the cover of Time magazine, cr- sitting cross-legged with the bats uh, crossed in front of him and what have you. Um, I think he ended up at 388. And I think that's the highest average since then. Oh, Brett, George Brett, 390, 390. maybe? 390, okay. Uh, that's always uh, some incredible theater. But, I mean, I just named two people what's happened in the last and- – and what 77 years like and can you, said. you imagine now the scrutiny ah. in the 24 <laughs> 7 remember back when paul molitor i think in the late 80s got to 31 games and there's been others since right in the 30s but but it's this is a little story i've had for the pete rose 44 mm-hmm. i didn't know i was seven years old at the time but uh, i do recall going to my first major league baseball game in atlanta with my dad and brother and some of our neighbors and i remember the guy who got him out through sidearm, a guy named Gene Garber. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I, what I still remember is Maxwell House coffee cup to my dad's dad. <laughs> I was at that game. That was my first You're ever. You're at the game where the hitting streak stopped? Yeah, Pete Rose. Oh. That was my first ever Major League Baseball game. I didn't put two and two together until years later when I realized, hey, we, we, wasn't that the game he took us to? Yeah, my dad. So, yeah, that was. How about that? So that was a, a little side story to what we're talking he about. Kinda, here. He kind of he kind of like walked me into this a little bit, so he could tell a, a, that that story yeah. as we as we went down memory memory well, lane from days uh, of days in our childhood or what have you. So <laughs> kind of cool. But yeah, the fifty six games. You know, another one we could add to that list. I mean, the name is going to slip me here, but the the only guy who played more games consecutively than Cal Ripken died a couple weeks ago in Japan. And uh, Cal Ripken, I read a story of him talking about it, but Cal Ripken Street, well, no one's ever going to touch that. No. Because nowadays... They, they give you days off. Yeah, nowadays, guys are saying, I, I want days off, I need days off. When Cal Ripken's days, it, it was like a badge of honor to go right. out there and play. Right. Yeah, baseball has changed drastically since some of those marks were set, and it's probably the reason that they won't be broken because of the super specialization when it comes to pitchers. It's tough for guys to hit at that high of an average. Uh, and then, of course, as you said, because the way guys take days off and they're worried about protecting their $100 million investments, no one plays every single day, especially with the number of day games that are mixed in before travel. So uh, those marks are all likely safe. I don't think anybody is joining those clubs anytime soon, but we love joining any club that, that Chris and Scott are a part of. So, guys, thank you so much as always. We encourage people to follow them on Twitter at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris, as they cover everything going on this weekend across Gator Nation. And we will talk next week. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Some of the most fascinating stories in sports involve siblings, whether it's Venus and Serena, Peyton and Eli, or even the Pouncey Twins. In the case of Florida Lacrosse, Two of the squad's biggest stars happen to be sisters. 
Shayna and Sydney Preka have been pivotal to the Gators' success in the last few years, but now the former is coming to the end of the road. Shayna is not going quietly, though, as her senior class just claimed a fourth consecutive Big East title and capped a career of conference dominance. We spoke to the elder Preka about her life and career and began by asking what it meant to claim another Big East tournament crown and to do it at Disney Stadium. I mean, I think it was extra special this year because it was at home especially for our senior class. I think it was really special because we went four for four in Big East championships and we're the only class that would be able to do that because we won't be in the Big East next year. So I think it was really cool knowing it was the last Big East championship we were going to be a part of and the fact that it was at home made it really special. Now your home is not in Gainesville. It's actually quite far from there. So tell us about where you grew up and your family up in in the New Mm -hmm. York area. Um, so I grew up in Mount Sinai, New York. It's on Long Island. It's really, really small town. Um, I have a sister, Sydney. Obviously, she plays with me here at Florida. And I have a, also a younger brother who is a senior in high school right now. And is he a lacrosse player as well? What, what is he known for in the family? Yeah, yeah. He plays lacrosse too, lacrosse and football. Um, he's committed to play lacrosse at Marist College next year. Wow. How did lacrosse become such a big deal in your family? Does this go back to, to your parents? Yeah. So me and Sydney pretty much just focused on gymnastics. We didn't really branch out into any other sports growing up. And then Jojo, my brother, he's four years younger. So he started playing when he was probably in like second or third grade. And kind of after me and Sydney quit gymnastics I was in seventh grade Sydney was in sixth grade then my dad kind of was just like all right we're gonna try something new and he put a stick in our hand and after that it was kind of we both fell in love with it talking about you and Sydney what was that dynamic like growing up was it competitive was it more Mm -hmm. supportive how did that kind of develop between you oh it was extremely competitive (laughs) (laughs) extremely um I mean especially with gymnastics that's such an individual sport so it was competitive from five years old. We've been like that. So, and I think it pushed us a lot too. I mean, I remember in gymnastics, if she got a new skill, I would be like, okay, well, I need to do it now because she did it and vice versa. And that definitely carried over into lacrosse too. Um, I think as we've gotten older and more mature, we've become more supportive of each other, but we've always had that competitive nature between us. Were there any instances where that competition got really, really heated and, and maybe your parents said, hey, we need to dial this back a little bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, we're both so competitive in general, but I think it was more personal against each other. So, I mean, there have definitely been times where my parents are like, all right, your sisters, you need to stop. I think they were scared for us to ever play on different teams because we're competitive enough as it is on the same team. So. Well, and that's that's what I was going to ask you too about you coming to Florida and then Sydney coming to Florida as well. Was that the thought that you needed to play for the same school? Because if you were on different teams, you guys, I don't know, you might end up killing each other if if you ever competed. Um, I mean, that's what my parents wanted. But <laughs> honestly, for us, especially me, I did not want to go to school with Sydney at all. Huh. That was the last. It's honestly pretty funny because I mean, when we were both getting recruited, that was the last thing I wanted. I remember saying to my parents at tournaments, you know, when both of us were getting looked at by the same schools and a bunch of schools kind of were offering a package deal with us. I was like, there is absolutely no way I'm going to school in Sydney. So it's honestly really funny how things worked out. 
So how did it work out that way? I mean, how did you come around to being not only okay with her coming to the same school as you, but the two of you excelling the way that you have? Um, honestly, my parents left it up to us to choose individually. You know, my parents told me, take Sydney out of the equation, take the school she's interested out. Which, what school do you love? Which school do you like see yourself playing at? So I think that's how I made my decision. I kind of took her out of the equation and I was like, where do I see myself being successful? Where do I see myself being happy? And Florida ended up being that place. And then Sydney went on a visit a couple months later and loved it too. And she decided that was that was where she wanted to go. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't the happiest about it when Sydney <laughs> chose Florida. But, I mean, now I am so grateful that she did. When you were looking at schools, and you mentioned that whole process, Florida obviously is a little bit of an outlier when you're looking up in the north and where lacrosse is so dominant. So what, what was the pitch like from Mandy? I mean, what did she say that made you want to come all the way down to Gainesville and obviously take on a, a lot of culture shock? Well, Florida was the first school I ended up visiting, my first recruiting trip, and I just absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, the whole idea that we could be the first to win a national championship, you know, we can build this program up from scratch. I mean, it was still pretty new when I came on my visit, only a couple seasons in, and I think Mandy's just vision of what this program could be really drew me to it. I mean, I just thought it would be really cool to be the first one to win a national championship. And speaking of that culture shock, because I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I don't know if that's a thing or if I just think mm-hmm. it's a thing. Oh, no, it definitely is a thing. <laughs> it definitely is. <laughs> well, I mean, in what ways has that manifested itself the most over your four years in Gainesville? Honestly, I think what has made it a lot easier is the fact that there are so many girls on our team from Long Island as well. So I think that kind of made the transition easier. Knowing, like I knew a lot of the girls that were on the team before I got here. Um, Caroline Fitzgerald, who graduated last year, was from the same high school as me. So having her in Gainesville when I got here made it a lot easier. But I mean, there are so many differences between <laughs> Gainesville and New York. It's crazy. What are some of the ones that, that still get you to this day? Oh, the like everything's just slower here. It drives me crazy. <laughs> I mean, what like in New York, you're just so used to getting everything so fast all the time. The driving too. The driving is definitely different. It's just, it's so funny because now I'm so used to it since I've been here for so long. But still, every time my parents come, you know, to visit and watch our games, my mom's like, it's so slow. Everything's so slow. (laughs) (laughs) How much of a challenge is it then going back to New York when you're in the the Gainesville mindset? Yeah, I I got, I mean, I remember after freshman year, like coming home for the summer and I was like scared to drive. I was like, oh my God, I forgot like how aggressive everybody is. And just like being in the supermarket, I'm like, oh my God, that person was so rude. And I'm like, oh wait, I'm in New York again. (laughs) Right. I think a lot of people in the South probably think they hear New York and they just assume that your family lives, you know, in Times Square or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Growing up, how often did you go into the city and, and how much was that a part of your life? From my house, it's probably like an hour and a half train ride. Hmm. So, I mean, well, we would go like a couple times throughout the year. Like maybe we always go during Christmas time. And then we go a couple other times throughout the year. But I mean, I don't really have that much contact with New York City. So it's kind of funny when, you know, I meet people here and they're like, oh, you're from New York? Like, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> I'm like, I've probably been there just as many times as you have. Right. So it's really, it's pretty funny. Looking at your your career, I'm, I'm curious if we can go back to when you were an underclassman. I always like to talk to athletes later in their careers and find out who had the biggest influence on them when they were starting out. So when you think about mm-hmm. when you came into the program, who were some of your biggest influences and, and why? 
I mean, when I came in, um, Shannon Gilroy was a senior when I was a freshman. So I think, you know, just seeing the success that she had in the program was really inspiring to me. You know, I wanted to be just like her. I wanted to be able to do everything she did. So I think she was a big impact on me coming in as a freshman. Um, I know Nicole Graziano, who ended up being a Torton finalist herself. She was a big influence. Lauren Lee. And I mean, my coaches too. I think that they all just made a really big impact on me. And I looked up to all of them so much. On the flip side of that, which underclassmen do you think you've had the biggest impact on as you've grown in your career? I don't know. I guess me and Sydney being together, I'm sure it made somewhat of an impact on her. I hope. <laughs> I hope so. But um, definitely this year, I've gotten very, very close with um, Shannon Cavanaugh and Sabrina Cristadaro, two freshmen. So, I mean, they become two of my best friends here. So I, I, I hope I had an impact on them as well. You scored so many goals and you've broken a lot of records and it's hard to, to narrow that down into a few moments. But if you think about maybe the, the more notable moments or games that still resonate with you from your career, what would those be? Definitely my sophomore year beating UNC for the first time and beating Syracuse. I mean, that was the first time I had ever been a part of a big win like that. So I would definitely say those were two of the most memorable games. And I mean, this year beating UNC as well, that was a really memorable game for me. Um, I mean, we, our whole team just really enjoyed that game so much. You know, it was really fun to be a part of and being able to beat Navy this year after a nine goal deficit. I think that was just a, a really special win that I was really, really happy to be a part of. You're one of only six Gators with over 200 career points or, are any of those, do you remember any of those? Any, I mean, any goal in particular that you scored that, that stands out? I guess um, the overtime game winner this year against Loyola, that was pretty special. I actually cried after that goal. <laughs> I was so overwhelmed. But that and my sophomore year, we were playing Michigan and we were down by three with like, I don't even know, like two minutes left. And I ended up scoring three straight, straight goals to tie it. So I think that was probably, for me, one of the most memorable during my career here. Well, it's been a big week for you for a number of reasons. You were just drafted to the new NPPL and are going to head to upstate New York to start that in June. Tell mm -hmm. us your excitement about being a part of this and also why you think the time is right for this new league to succeed. Yeah, I mean, I'm so excited to be a part of it. It's the inaugural season for the league, so um, I'm just really, really excited to see what's to come. I think that this is a perfect time for a league like this to start up because, I mean, the, the sport is growing more and more every single year. The game's spreading across the country. So, I mean, even from the time that I started playing till now, it's a completely different game. So I think if there was a time to start a league like this, it would be right now because, I mean, there's just the game is growing and expanding so much. So it's really exciting. At the rate the sport is growing in Spain, there's still a lot of people that are new to it who are trying to learn the sport. Uh, I'm curious what you find to be the most misunderstood aspect of lacrosse. Maybe questions you get that you just have to laugh off and, and try and explain it, it away. Yeah, I mean, in Gainesville, I get a lot of uh, crazy questions about lacrosse. Most people here don't really even know what it is yet, which <laughs> I just I think it's pretty funny because growing up on Long Island, I mean, lacrosse is the sport. You know, everyone plays lacrosse. Sure. I think the biggest misconception with women's lacrosse is just the fouling. I think a, a lot of people think there's too much fouling in women's lacrosse, too many whistles. But I think that's something that, you know, we're working really, really hard 
to change. I mean, with the new rules, um, the free movement, all that stuff. So I think that's kind of limiting that feeling of, oh my God, there's so many whistles. Why are there so many whistles? Like, why does the game stop so much? So I think that U.S. lacrosse, everybody's making a lot of effort to change that with all the new rule changes. But, oh, one thing I always get is, why do you always drop your stick after a goal? <laughs> right. I always get that. Why did she drop her stick? Why did she drop her stick? Um, so, we, I mean, we have to drop it because they have to check the pocket after every goal. But that's a question I get all the time. I'm not surprised by that. Uh, yeah, they're like, is it celebration? I don't get it. I'm like, no, we have to do it. Like, what a weird way to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving over to the classroom, you're a history major at UF. I'm curious why you chose that route and what interests you the most about it. Um, I think it was more of, you know, coming into freshman year, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I always had an idea of being a teacher and a coach. So I kind of knew that I was going to go one of two ways, either, you know, pursue college coaching or pursue high school coaching and be a teacher. So I figured, you know, I, I do love history. I, it was always something that um, interested me all throughout school. So I figured I could, you know, be a high school teacher or whatever it is, and then be a um, high school lacrosse coach as well. When you get away from the field, you get away from the classroom, what are some things you enjoy doing? Um, I really like working out. Um, honestly, lacrosse takes up a lot of my time. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't really have much time to do anything else. But, you know, just relaxing. I mean, nothing crazy. Hanging out with my friends, um, going to the beach. I mean, living on Long Island, there's beaches everywhere. Sure. So I'm, I'm always at least 10 minutes from a beach. So I try to go to the beach a lot in my free time. Pretty much just relaxing, you know. Wrapping things up, the NCAA tournament starts this weekend in Gainesville. You talked at the beginning of our conversation about the dream of coming here and winning a national title. So uh, obviously that's the goal. But for you and your mm -hmm. fellow seniors, uh, how do you measure success as you wrap up your careers here? I mean, I think we've all, you know, we can look back on our careers and know that we've had success. But I think that it would be so meaningful to us, you know, be able to get over that hump that we've been struggling with the past couple of years. We've lost in the second round of the NCAA tournament every year we've been here. So I think that it would be really, really cool for us to, you know, try to like break through that wall and get to the final four. I mean, the final four is in Stony Brook this year on Long Island, which is like 10 minutes from my house. So it would be like even more special to be able to make it to the final four, compete for a national championship and be so close to home. You mentioned three straight years of exiting the second round. Is there anything that, that you and your teammates and especially the coaches have identified as the keys to getting over that hump here this week? Um, I think that, you know, we focused this week on kind of remembering that feeling, remembering how badly it felt to see another team celebrate on our on our field, you know, to know, like to be walk off the field for the last time. So I think we don't try to think about it too much. I think we just focus on whoever we're going to play on Sunday it could be Jacksonville or Colorado. But um, I think it's kind of business as usual right now, but keeping in the back of our mind, you know, remembering how we felt last year. So we don't feel like that again. Well, Shannon, we hope that you do get over that hump. We hope you guys have a really successful run in the tournament and certainly wish you a lot of luck going forward as you uh, pursue your post Gator career. Thank you very much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. 
follow softball in the SEC tournament on the ESPN family of networks beginning on Thursday night and get out and see baseball, tennis, and lacrosse all competing at home with big stakes on the line throughout the weekend. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you on campus.